The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, January the 30th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Last night, with just 60 days to go until the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union, the House of Commons narrowly passed a government-backed amendment tabled by senior Tory Graham Brady, promising to replace the Irish backstop with unspecified alternative arrangements. Theresa May's government also succeeded in defeating a number of amendments designed to give Parliament control over the House's order of business in order to prevent a no-deal Brexit. So now Theresa May will return to Brussels, seeking to reopen negotiations on the withdrawal agreement and putting forward these alternative arrangements, whatever they may be. Our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly, is with me in studio and we'll be joined in a little while by Europe editor, Patrick Smith. But first, The Guardian's Brexit correspondent, Lisa O'Carroll, is on the line from London. Lisa O'Carroll, everything seems to be going swimmingly as usual uh, in Westminster. Yeah, that's right. Um, For now. So yeah, yesterday, I think everybody would agree, marked um, a new high, but lowish, watermark for the Tory party in terms of internal party management. Theresa May is coming back to the House of Commons this morning. She's expected to be quite buoyant on the back of her kind of symbolic victory last night um, with the Brady Amendment. But it's a very fragile sort of victory. And I think the unity within the Tory party is also very delicate. The ERG is straight away, you know, the European Research Group um, showed their true colours last night uh, on Newsnight. Steve Baker, you may remember, is the chap who is acting like the chief whip in the ERG and who got them to call the vote of no confidence in December, which they lost. So that was a tactical mistake. But he was on last night saying this backstop will not ever pass the House of Commons. Um, He was quite angry um, and was asked, well, if she comes back, as is expected with the news that the EU aren't going to budge on the withdrawal agreement, as they have said absolutely firmly again this morning from several quarters in the EU. His response was, well, we'll vote it down enormously. So I think in two weeks' time, the 14th of February, we're going to be in a very, very similar position. So just trying to pull all this apart and make make some sense of it, let's start with the ERG. I mean, looking at um, Baker Baker's appearance last night on, on BBC and looking at what we know about the ERG anyway um, if I were in Brussels and we'll be coming to that uh, a little bit later in this podcast um, I wouldn't trust Theresa May's ability to deliver her party on anything she came back with even if on paper some of it met met the requirements in relation to the backstop Yeah, this is the thing with the votes last night, the two that did um, well, it, well the, the, the Graham Brady vote and also the Spellman vote on no deal they were narrow victories, narrow, narrow victories. The no-deal no victory was 318 to 310. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think Theresa May is going to be able to go back uh, with full confidence to Brussels and say, look, I can guarantee you a full majority on anything. In, for a start, she hasn't got any proposal for them other than alternative arrangements, two very woolly words, and she hasn't got a clear majority. She hasn't got a landslide to demonstrate to the EU, um, stick with me. She started off yesterday morning guaranteeing that the backstop would stay in the withdrawal agreement, that it was immovable. And by, by, by the end of the day, she had reneged on that. She had reneged on the, her own deal that she spent two and a half years negotiating. So what 
does, does anybody at Westminster have any sense of what her strategy is here? The quote-unquote alternative arrangements, which are clearly, you know, she doesn't have them. They're not going to be accepted by Brussels. Anything that Brussels did come up with, and it's very unlikely to come up with very much because it has no faith in her ability to deliver anything. Where does she go in, in two weeks' time? Or is it as short-term as just getting to two weeks' time and then taking it from there? I think yeah, you, that this is absolutely um, the point, isn't it? That's the point that Sabine Weyond made very clearly two days ago, which was one of the issues with the UK was that Theresa May, she conducted the negotiations within a very very tight circle, Ollie Robbins, Robbie Gibbs, and a few others within um, the, the cabinet. And this is the problem when you have negotiations in secret and then you reveal what your hand is to the wider group, you will get all the, 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 the pushback. Um, and, and, and to come to your question about the strategy, think her strategy is to buy more time buy another 24 hours do you remember even a few months ago when i was on the podcast there was a, this very nice quote from somebody with westminster said Theresa may's strategy is to get through to the next lunchtime and i think she's 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 bought herself a little bit more time she's bought herself two weeks but this is her strategy run down the clock to such a point where you the no deal is an absolute you know is a high high risk severe threat um and then hopefully force the erg and others um uh, to their senses and vote with her. Because, um, Fiac, I wonder, I don't know what you're hearing in Dublin this morning. I suppose one of the things that, uh, one of the many things really that came out of last night is that on the face of it, the focus now, as voted on by Westminster, is on the Irish backstop, on nothing else but the Irish backstop. So in theory, at least, the, the full glare of the spotlight turns to Dublin um, rather, than, rather than to Brussels. But is there any sense of that in Dublin or any reaction to that? Well, the focus has been on the backstop for some time. I, saw, I suppose what we saw last night was, as Lisa says, this fragile majority in favour of something, but not anything specific. So the focus is on the backstop, but it's not on it in an intense way, whereas Theresa May, if she was in a situation where she had, I don't like the backstop as currently constructed, and here is my alternative proposal, that's not what it is. It's just, oh, let's reopen the withdrawal agreement and see where we get. And I think the position in Dublin is just one of kind of amusement and frustration and to a certain extent anger because she was resolute in defending the need for the backstop in various parliamentary debates in the House of Commons since November. She stood by it and the Irish government used to cite her repeatedly by saying, well, Theresa May is in favour of the backstop and only today uh, she said X, Y and Z in the House of Commons about why it is needed and then to do a vault fast in the space of a couple of hours I think is, has astonished some people that she can do so and I think as Lisa says the rationale they are giving is that is just to get through the next period the next 24 hours like I don't think anybody expects that she expects to get any anything other than a firm no from Brussels if she asks to open the withdrawal agreement and offers no concessions in return. That's one we've t- thing we've heard repeatedly in recent days, that she's asking what she's not offering. So if she wants to open the withdrawal agreement, she would have to do something hugely significant, like breach her red lines on the coast. Well, well and, and you, you had a story about this just a couple of days ago, which was noises coming out of Dublin, that if in terms of the political declaration, if there was some commitment or move towards, you know, Britain remaining part of the customs union or a customs union and various other things of that sort, that that might change the equation to some extent. And we've heard similar well, noises they've, out they've, of Brussels. All, the, the line for a long time has been the political declaration is where changing British priorities could be reflected. But what I suppose what's happened over the weekend, The Guardian actually had a piece as well, Lisa, where Juncker said to May in a phone call, changes in the backstop, if you want that, you need to move on the customs union. We had a story today saying to open the withdrawal agreement itself, not the political declaration. 
that the British would have to take a position in favour of a permanent customs union or else bringing onto the table Northern Ireland-specific measures. So, in other words, reverting back to the original proposal for a Northern Ireland-specific backstop. Using the ERG and using the, the DUP ERG immediately. Now, in a way, that's asking the impossible. She, Theresa May has shown no inclination that she wants to do so. She's shown no inclination to reach out to the Labour Party, whose position is to have a permanent customs union with the, the EU. So if that's the bar they're setting for the withdrawal agreement to be reopened, she's going to fall short of it and she's not going to get much. And I think maybe the, the strategy is to wait and see to the next vote in the middle of February what happens then because Lisa will be able to talk about this in a bit more detail just reading the coverage from the, the UK in the last few days that some people within the cabinet and within the Tory party who wanted to vote strongly uh, not just in a symbolic way to prevent no deal were asked not to do so because it'd have another opportunity in February. So does the Tory party discipline that we saw on display last night crumble when no deal gets closer? So perhaps Dublin and Brussels will be inclined just to wait for another few weeks. Because that's a, the other key thing, isn't it, that happened last night, Lisa, that the, the, the strong amendments, the kind of give back control to Parliament amendments from Dominic Grieve and perhaps even more pertinently from Yvette Cooper fell. And really they fell largely because of um, votes against or abstentions on the Labour side? Well, I think they fell because of party politics. Um, anything that uh, had you know, a Labour amendment was not going to be supported by the Conservative Party, maybe by some Conservative rebels, yes. And the same with the Dominic Grieve one. And I think there were also, with the Cooper amendment, there were also reservations expressed on both sides um, that this would have implications for you know, the parliamentary procedures ongoing, not just about no deal. But to pick up a point on, you, you, you know, what Fiuk was saying about uh, Theresa May's red lines, um, I had an interesting discussion with somebody here who knows a lot more, had a lot more contact with um, Tory ministers and cabinet people about Theresa May and where she's going. Um, and time and time again, this person has been told that she wants to do the right thing. That is, that, that, that's her sort of core um, driving philosophy, wants to do the right thing. But the question is whether she thinks the right thing is, we know the right thing is for her is, uh, the, to, to stop freedom of movement. Immigration is you know, one of her basic principles and she's been accused of putting immigration ahead of the economy. But when it comes to the customs union, people are saying they don't know. Is that something that she thinks is the right thing, that she has to just deliver the Brexit vote to the people, the 17.2 million who voted for Brexit? We don't know. Um, but the other thing we've got to bear in mind as well in British politics is as the clock Ticks, ticks down, we're, we're ticking down both to the European Parliament elections, but also to the next phase in the Tory party. Um, she's not going to, she's already said she's not going to stand in the um, next election, not going to be the leader. So it's very interesting to see the likes of Boris Johnson, who is, you know, open, naked ambitions to be prime minister, um, saying last night that he would support only, um, you know, there, there were some conditions on his support you know that, that that's the next that's the next stage post march the 29th whether it goes through or not is is um is the tory party leadership but i wonder is there any sense I, when i hear you say that um and i'm of course that's very important and it's very important for the future of britain as to who the next prime minister is but frankly i don't give a damn who the uk prime minister is at the moment it's a it's a lilliputian issue compared to the huge huge issues constitutional issues which the united kingdom and by extension us their next door neighbors face there's a kind of political um, narcissism in the UK focusing on an issue like that rather than the more important one. I think that is the, very, that is the message you get from so many leaders um, in Europe. And even in Dublin, um, this morning I was speaking to somebody who was saying that, 
you know, at, at the heart of this is, uh, the, you know, an existential crisis for the EU. And the EU, in a way, is um, not going to do, um, why would it throw a member state, um, uh, Ireland, under a bus, a member state that has legit legitimate concerns? Why would it, why would it overlook those uh, in favour of a country that's leaving? So yes, I think I think that, that you know those who have said even last night the German foreign minister saying that uh, it is a myth um, put out by the Brexiters that the German business German car manufacturers are equally worried about a no deal as the manufacturers in Britain. He's saying no, that's a myth, um, uh, per, uh, which is which is being perpetuated by the Tories, um, and that the unity of the EU, which is also facing pressures. As we know from other quarters, the, the unity of the EU is far more important than, than um, as you say, narcissistic politics in, in, in a member state that's leaving. And as you say, you, you know, Theresa May has said she's not going to lead the Tory party into the next general election. What happens if and when Brexit is delivered? From a Dublin perspective, you would think that underlines, and what we saw in the last couple of days, further underlines the need for a backstop. Like... You often hear people in Dublin say, we trust Theresa May as a negotiating partner, although I'm sure that's been damaged in the last week or two. But the reason is, you know, you often hear, we don't know what's coming next. And why would we give up what we have in the shape of the withdrawal agreement, a legally watertight guarantee for the promises of another leader, one of whom, Michael Gove, openly trashed the Good Friday Agreement throughout his career. So if you're looking at it from a Dublin point of view, that has to be a consideration. And this idea, as Least says, of this Brexiteer insularity about their own perspective and this narcissism, like that idea, oh, that the German car manufacturers will ride to our rescue. Like, like watching Newsnight last night, Lord Digby Jones came out with this, like, you know, this old chestnut of this just has to be sorted out now between London and Berlin. This is where it's at now. We will fly to Berlin and sort this out. And I was reminded of a tweet that David Davis sent the day after the referendum result. You know, the first stop for our negotiator should be Berlin, where this is all going to be worked out. And they haven't moved on in two and a half years. Like, there's no appreciation about the cohesion of the EU 27. And the lessons haven't been learned. Lisa, we're, we're going to let you go now, but we're actually going to explore some of those European and Irish issues a little bit more after the break. Uh, talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us. And we're joined now by our Europe editor, Paddy Smith. Uh, Fiek is still with us. Um, Paddy, just before you came in, Fiek was um, talking about what it would take for the European Union to to reopen um, backstop negotiations. And we've had some indication of that over the um, over the last week or so. What kind of commitments the um, the United Kingdom would would need to make? Well, the resolution uh, that, that, that the Commons passed, the amendment that the Commons talked about alternative methods of applying uh, a backstop. So there seems to be an acceptance that uh, a, a form of a backstop will, will, will be there. And the withdrawal treaty actually refers to alternative methods in it. Uh, and those uh, uh, really as a sop to, to the British who have been talking about technological alternatives to, to uh, the backstop. Um, famous MaxFac. The famous MaxFac. I thought we got rid of that. Have, no, no, it's re-emerged. It's made a re and this, uh, this cross-party or cross-Tory agreement that emerged recently seems to be a reheating of MaxFac. Well, this, well. Is, this is the problem. And what, what isn't understood, I think, by uh, the British uh, is that the uh, whole MaxFac alternative to uh, the backstop was an alternative to methods of policing uh, the border or not policing the border but based on a premise 
that uh, it was policing an arrangement in which Britain or Northern Ireland were signed up to customs union and uh, to large elements of the, of the single market regulatory regulatory alignment. In other words, and was there an understanding of that on the British side uh, that 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 those technological solutions would only ever come into play if those political agreements were in place those, on top of those and, and okay. as a means and was of, there an understanding on the british side of that you, it's very difficult to uh, <laughs> answer that question because uh, the british seem to have been deliberately misunderstanding elements of everything all the way through and uh, and i have to say that in but it's very clearly understood in in brussels and if if she goes back and she will go back to brussels and says uh, we want to reopen the withdrawal agreement uh, she's likely first to be told to do what, and uh, if she then says, "Well, uh, we think there's technological ways of of of, uh, of doing away with the with the border," they will say, "Well, yes, there is a mention of that in the withdrawal agreement, so maybe we can talk around that." But let's be clear: you still have to commit yourself to uh, the uh, customs union and and the single market because that's what the border is. That's effectively, and this is what is is forgotten. It, it is an arrangement about customs. It is an arrangement about how you deal with inequalities in, in, in market regulation and protecting the Euro European market and the Irish market from an influx of, of goods or, or, or whatever from, from Britain that doesn't, doesn't meet those, those uh, uh, standards. And the other point I would make about uh, the arrangement that was the, the vote last night is that it was with the support of the DUP, who are crucial to to this wafer-thin majority she has for a revision of, of the backstop. And the, the DUP's position is still and will remain that they will not support any arrangement whatsoever which differentiates between Northern Ireland and, and, and the UK. And it's very difficult to conceive of any kind of formulation uh, along the lines that I was talking about that doesn't have some kind of differentiation between uh, the the uh, uh, Northern Ireland and, and the UK. Which means that when she goes to Brussels and says to them, look, I can do a deal uh, this time. You know, we have a majority for a, uh, a reform of the, of the backstop arrangement. People in Brussels can say, but do you? Because you're... you're thing is, is wafer thin and, uh, and we're not, not just reliant on the DUP but as mentioned earlier in the podcast you, there's a serious doubt about what kind of arrangement would be satisfactory to the ERG yeah they're going to set a very very high bar and so we're not out of the water by any means and she knows that perfectly well and the question is whether or not uh, as uh, uh, commentators have suggested whether or not what she's doing is just buying time to return to the commons to say, I can't get a better deal, it's my deal or no deal, and now we've two days to go, so you have to support my deal. Or, or, it's, or it's, a, it's, a, it's a very nasty piece of, of brinkmanship, but it is, does seem to be uh, the only rational explanation for what she's doing. Looking at it from your Brussels perch, um, what is the position or posture of the EU likely to be when she arrives in the next day or two with this position uh, clearly weak, um, clearly there's a lack of faith in her ability to deliver any further, you know, to deliver her side should any further agreement or change happen. What What is the approach likely to be? I mean, will they want to give her some kind of a crumb to bring back or will the, will, will the uh, desire be to be as clear as possible that these are, this is the situation, 
nothing's going to change, bring that back and deal with it internally and domestically. In in repeated returns to, to Brussels, uh, the Brussels attitude has been very similar. And I, and I, I have no doubt that they, they will be as positive as they can, that they are willing to talk and they're willing to go on talking uh, to the British to the, to, to the end. But they will say very clearly, listen, uh, you know, the, the withdrawal agreement can't be reopened. We, we have uh, done that. But as I said before, there is this uh, clause in the uh, withdrawal agreement which does refer, refer to alternative methods and it is possible that they will be willing to explore what that means in, in, in practice and whether that will produce anything. But my, uh, my understanding is that that doesn't actually open up any serious opportunities for, 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 the, uh, for the UK to get a, a change and, and the likelihood of her returning uh, with the deal is, is is very slim, and the other the other point is is that all all the signs are that there is no break whatsoever in the unity of the twenty seven. So we shouldn't. Uh, we should. We, I mean, for example, the statement by the Polish minister last week. We shouldn't ascribe any great significance to that. No, I, and indeed, uh, there was it was almost derision in uh, among diplomats in in uh, Brussels and suggestions that he was doing it in he prompted by. Uh, perhaps the British, uh, and that he was trying to be helpful. To, this was to, to, to put a timestamp. Put a t- on, put a time on limit on, on on the backstop. A time limit on the backstop is is as the Irish will tell you again and again a, a contradiction in terms. It cannot backstop cannot survive if if there is a. Um, a, t- a time limit in there. I thought the best suggestion actually was there was a, quite a nice letter to the Irish Times uh, last week uh, from a reader. He said, well, maybe we should have a time time limit on the backstop. How about 800 years? Theoc, <laughs> 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 um, there is a view out there, a minority view, but there is a view that the, the achievement of EU unity behind the Irish position on the backstop and no border in Ireland and all that, while on the face of it a great diplomatic achievement um, by, the, by the Irish state and the, and the current Irish government, uh, may turn out to be catastrophic, uh, ultimately in the end, if the consequence is ends up being a no-deal Brexit with a border on the island of Ireland and the kind of untold economic damage which we've been hearing about over the last uh, 24 hours or so. Does that play in at all to what you're hearing in government buildings? The view from government buildings, I think, is has been relatively steadfast and in recent weeks, I think, has probably strengthened somewhat. I was chatting to someone the other day who said the bilateral meeting between the British and the Irish at the December summit really made the Irish delegation walk away and say, that is it, we cannot budge on this backstop because everything the British were looking for was wrapped nicely in an ask that was basically aimed at stymieing the backstop in some way, legally damaging it, and they walked away from that meeting saying, we cannot give an inch on this. And I think the view from, if you chat to people around the Taoiseach, they say he shares that view, senior people around him share that view. Um, This argument is gaining some traction in public discourse about the backstop being such a huge gamble that it may tip us into no deal. But I think if you look back two, three years at the position the British government was taking before the joint report in December 2017, when the shape of the Brexit the British wanted to pursue was quite clear, it was out of the single market, out of the customs union, out from under the European Court of Justice, and the phrase they kept using was a frictionless border as possible. So it was either what we have now, which is a high-stakes position on the backstop, 
or allowing the British proceed to the future trade relationship talks where they wanted this sorting out, knowing full well what they wanted the future trade relationship to be. So I think it was a gamble, but I don't think the Irish government had much of a choice given what they knew about the British position. Yes, it may cause a a no-deal Brexit, but there are people, senior people in government buildings for quite some time have believed and or doubted the capacity of the British system to deliver a deal of any kind. So some people seem to be stealing themselves for, well, if there is a no deal, not so be it, but we predicted this and how do we prepare politically for the eventuality of it? Within that, that's, that's pretty bleak in, in, in some ways, Paddy. Is there anything that the Irish or the, or the EU side can do, given that we have an interest in certain scenarios that might emerge over the next uh two months being more in our interest than other worse ones, like like No Deal, for example, be, uh, being one. Is there anything we can do rather than just watch this Shakespearean tragic comedy play out at Westminster over the next 59 days as it is now? No, I, I think you go back to like, first principles of where this uh, the discussions with, with the, the UK started and and Michel Barnier repeats this uh, ad nauseum, and it seems so obvious, but it is actually the kernel of, of truth. Britain decided to leave the European Union. Britain decided that it was going out, uh, irrespective of its commitments to, to, to Northern Ireland. And the European Union cannot be expected to change its nature or its rules to suit uh, the British, but we want to stand by our, our member in Ireland in relation to the obligations it has from Britain in, in, the, in the Good Friday Agreement. So it's, it, you know, it, the, the message from London is always the European Union should give, the European Union should change, it, the European, but it is the British who are leaving the European Union and it is they who are, uh, have to fashion that change. Uh, and I don't actually think there is very much no that that, that, that can be done, and, and certainly not on the, on, the, on a time limit to the back. Did an extension of Article Fifty become more or less likely after last night? Do you think? It, I think became less likely. I think that what isn't understood uh, very well in 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 London is that it's not a question of of Yvette Cooper ordering the government to take get an extension. It's a question of of London applying to uh, the 27 and saying we need an extension of two months or or three months or whatever it is in order to do the following and at the end of that time uh, we will have a definitive result Uh, the 27 will not concede uh, a an extension if it's simply to allow the deadlock which is existing in British politics uh, to to continue and and I don't believe British government is in a position uh, to say we will get a definitive result in two months if you give us this thing. Because even even if they were to say we'll have an, another referendum, the question then becomes what question is asked in the referendum? And uh, does Parliament commit itself in advance to implementing whatever the result of that referendum is? Those are very difficult questions that she she can't answer to, to the 27th. My favourite reductio ad absurdum of all this over the last couple of weeks was the uh, the Tory Brexiter MP who asked the Polish government to veto an application for uh, an extension of Article 50 should Parliament instruct Theresa May to do that, which is really the ultimate version of taking back control. Well, or else Jacob Rees-Mogg saying that the Queen should prorogue Parliament if there was any doubt about it implementing what was happening or, 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 or 
or, or obvious. I think it was because he didn't want a motion passed that would prevent no deal, and he wants the Queen should suspend Parliament, which is quite you really have, ironic. You have, and this is as an aside, you have a delightful. Uh, discussion going on in, in, in Parliament about the, the powers of the executive versus the powers of Parliament and MPs. And the people who campaigned most vigorously for a return of the powers of, of the Parliament uh, from Brussels are now the people who are most vigorously opposed to Parliament taking the issue uh, under their wing and making the decisions for, for government. And uh, it's it's a very peculiar paradox. I mean, I, it, it's easy for us, and God knows it's easy for me, I do it all the time, to kind of pour scorn on the dysfunctionality and the lies and the blindness and the narcissism, as I said earlier. But uh, these people are our friends and neighbours, Fick, and they're, they've got themselves into a terrible mess. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it could end in terrible consequences for them and for us. And I, I just wonder, is there more we can do in some way to help them out of it? I don't think so, because I think the position was taken quite clearly, certainly under this administration, that it, the, the, the view was taken that you're either on the EU side or on the UK side, and this government in particular quite strongly struck by, stuck by the, the EU. Like... What more can we do to help the UK without undermining our own fundamental position, which is the backstop is the legally operable guarantee to avoid return of a hard border. If we were suddenly to unilaterally offer a five-year exit clause from that, that would totally scupper the purpose of the backstop. So what can we do? Now, I do. there, there has been a problem with tone, I think, from Dublin. The substance... I think has been probably largely bang on the need for the backstop, maintaining the position with the backstop. But the tone of some of the communications from the Taoiseach and his ministers has probably inflamed opinion in London in a way it, it may not have done. Well, he's, a, he's a figure of hate in sections of the British media these days. That he? was probably inevitable. But like, I remember during the summer when the the, the, the football championships were on and he was asked at the door seven Brussels who are you supporting tonight and he said oh Belgium as if like there was no second way Belgium were playing England like he didn't have to do that it gives the tabloids an opportunity to attack you in the UK and there's a certain element sometimes of the Dublin government lecturing the London government which I don't think comes across too well but in the substance I don't think there's anything more that can be done without undermining our own position How much does this preoccupy the EU? I remember about a year or so ago uh, Paddy we were hearing actually you know, the EU as an institution has moved on. It's got a bunch of other very serious challenges to face. It's accepted Brexit is happening. It just wants to get it done and dusted in whatever fashion that may be. Is that still the case? Well, uh, no, there are other issues on, on, on the agenda and and uh, Brexit is only one item on, on summit agendas uh, and the, the other items are, are really very major. I mean, the, the, the immigration crisis, uh, the consolidation and completion of, of monetary union, banking union, the uh, uh, the problems with the rule of law in Hungary and uh, Poland should not be underestimated because they actually strike at the heart of, of uh, the legal order in the European Union. And um, these are all problems which are are really major and, and dominate actually most of the uh, the summits that we've had in in, in the recent while, uh, the summits tend to, to have a, a pre-cooked um, uh, a, a agenda on on uh, uh, on Brexit and and, and are, are 
a sort of nod through of of reports that had been agreed in advance, pro forma, in, in a sense, uh, whereas the real debates are happening on, on the other issues. And it's certainly the case that, that a lot of member states uh, are much more preoccupied with other, other issues. Some of them are, uh, like Italy, maybe the trade with, with uh, Britain isn't that serious. They're much more worried about their their own budget situation and the, the immigration, the flow of, of, of immigrants. But there was there's one point I, I, I would make about... Um, the attitude in Europe to the to the whole thing. The British, uh, a lot of the British are under this illusion that Europe is there is out to get them and that there are there are the enemy, basically the Germans, the French, uh, that they hate the British and all the rest. And I I find that very difficult um, concept because it's actually not true. I was I was at a film in in Brussels uh, a few months ago, um, The Darkest Hour, which is about. Uh, um, Churchill and the, the Second World War, and at, at a particularly crucial moment for British uh, policy, uh, Churchill was insisting that, um, that Britain must remain engaged in the fight against uh, Hitler. That, uh, that there were isolationists who said that Britain should should leave Europe behind and go. Away. Anyway, it it finished with Churchill's success and his great speech. We'll fight them on the beaches, and then, to my astonishment, in this crowded Belgian cinema. There was a standing ovation. And what it was about was not, we think Churchill's a great guy, but it was about a combination of memories of the British role at the end of the Second World War in liberating Belgium, uh, but their affection for Britain and its part of Europe. Uh, and nobody made speeches or anything else, but it was quite clear to me that this was ordinary Belgian people saying, we don't want you to leave, you know, we... Of great affection for you, and you find that all over Europe, in Germany, in parts of Germany, in, in, in Spain, in uh, 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 in Italy, and, and that is something that is seriously not understood in Britain. Uh, rest of Europe regards it this as an extraordinary, inexplicable uh, shot, um, self-inflicted. It's wound. funny to hear that, fear, because finally, I mean, I, I it's. When you look at British um, coverage, say of, of of the very film which Paddy has just mentioned, it's like they're looking through a different end of, end end of the telescope. So I see people on social media saying, "I saw a, a tweet yesterday saying, you know, we survived World War Two and we'll survive this." And somebody responds to them, "You've never even been paintballing, yeah, and now yeah. you're going to, you're going to do this." Um, it's you almost, know. almost the, there was another film that was almost like a companion piece to that movie, which is Dunkirk, which I think was released a yeah, year beforehand. Yeah. I remember seeing Nigel Farage exhorting the young people of Britain to go and watch this movie and see what it's all about and that that view is the direct opposite you saw that brexiteer um his first name is casey mr francois in, in recent days ripping up the letter and talking about teutonic arrogance and my father faced him down in normandy and i'm not going to be and you're just like you know that is such it's just it's just the insular conversation they have about those things yeah. and the sentiment that paddy talks about just doesn't reach them or they don't want to listen to it are we going to have to find our own uh, blitz spirit fake you know fake, uh, cliff taylor was writing about how we may not have access to our marks and spencer's ready meals for example yes indeed um I, the one thing i do wonder wonder about is if this all ends in a no deal situation what is the reaction amongst um the irish electorate generally is there blame? And if there is blame, who do they blame? Do they blame the old enemy, Perfidious Albion? Do they blame the government for pushing it too far? Or do they blame the Europeans? And I think that's the, the great unknown. But there was a poll at the weekend in the Sunday Business Post which showed an overwhelming majority of the public supporting the government's position. 
So I think that, w- that would be curious. It's been good for Fine Gael, this position, I would say. Would you agree? It has because people like the image of a young Taoiseach standing up for Ireland's interests abroad in a manner that is quite resolute and quite strong. Like we may say at times his tone is wrong, but he's seen standing up to, let's face it, the old enemy, Britain, and people like that. And it's it's played to an audience that Fine Gael traditionally would not have reached. Fine Gael would never have been associated with the national interest. And like, you know, Leo Varadkar's line in December 2017 when the joint report signed, this is, we will never leave nationalists in Northern Ireland behind. Like that whole new opening up of an, an audience for Fine Gael, I think has been a key element of his success. Bear in mind, after the joint agreement was signed in December 2017, they left four or five points, in our opinion, Paul, thereafter to the mid-30s, and they've never really dipped below that 30-31 mark. So I think they know it plays well as well, and it probably will be in their interest to be seen to be really tough in the next few weeks. When does Theresa May arrive in, in Brussels waving a piece of her piece of paper with alternative arrangements on it? I, I don't know the answer, and uh, uh, the 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 fact is that she has to come up with alternative arrangements because the resolution, uh, the Brady resolution, doesn't actually spell spell out what uh, this means. Now we we speculated that it's it's Max Fack, and in, if it's just simply Max Fack, then she's going to get short shrift. Well, we shall see. Paddy, thanks for very much for coming in today. Uh, thanks also to Fiek and to Lisa who joined us earlier. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might happen to be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. Your views are always very welcome to us. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening. 